Welcome to episode 17 of 514 Beltway to Bytown podcast. My name is Jeff, and with me is my longtime friend Todd. This podcast is recorded remotely, with me being in D.C. and Todd in Canada's capital city of Ottawa. Remember, everything we say could be fact or fiction. What's on tap for tonight, Todd? Jeff, tonight we're dialing up age for hero. <laughs> tonight we have a South Shore Montrealer who has committed his professional life to serving Canadians. Mike Doris is a proud native of Greenfield Park, Quebec, a former corrections officer and case manager with Corrections Canada, and a proud veteran of the Canadian Armed Forces. Former military police officer, Mike is now pursuing a master's degree in public safety with a specialization in national security at the prestigious Wilfrid Laurier University. Former university football flair and friend of ours, Mike Doris, welcome to the 514. Thanks a lot, guys. Great to be here with you. You know, ever since you guys invited me, I can't get out of my head that old skit from Saturday Night Live about the bears. The bears. <laughs> the bears. And I, I just want you to know that in my head, that's, that's set. That's the three of us where we ought to be. So Perfect. Hey, George went. I'll, I'll run with it, man. That was a good uh, <laughs> heart attack. <laughs> Polish, Polish sausage. So, yes. Mike, we have a, a large list, large amount of listeners on this. I could, I could see when you I did think, a bit of research there. You're, you're a great biographer. When I think of Greenfield Park, and for those of, those of you who aren't, because we have some American listeners as well, for those who aren't familiar with Greenfield Park, Greenfield Park is in a suburb of Montreal, probably a town of about close to 17,000 people. But if people think of Greenfield Park, they think of this kind of like iconic, blue-collar, tough-as-nails, uh, you know, mixed community on the, like the South Shore of Montreal that's kind of forged a lot of great Canadians. Working-class you know, community full about, of characters. That's yes, sure. sir. Yeah, for sure. And you think like, you know, like World War II, Greenfield Park was one of the Canadian communities that had the highest participation rate like for volunteers at size, right? So... A lot of great Canadians came out of Greenfield Park, but I think of you because I think you're kind of a die-in-the-wool Greenfield Park native. So you grew up in, in the 1970s in Greenfield Park, those Stephen Olnick years. Yes, sir. Um, what was it like, describe to the listeners, what was Greenfield Park like at that time growing up on the South Shore? Wow, it was just a, like a really vibrant community. Everybody knew each other, you know, like I... I went to Royal George Elementary School, the, the, the elementary school my mom and dad and all my aunts and uncles and my cousins went to. And the, the kids that I, that I hung around with, like I would bring kids home and my parents would say, oh, that's so-and-so's son. And, and so everybody kind of knew everybody, but not just in a small town way, in a generational way. And um, like I said, it just had a lot of character, like a very kind of working class and a blue collar town and, and the kind of problems that, that people have that build character and, and create a, I guess, a real com camaraderie among uh, the youth, if you will. So you've, like I said, you've lived in other communities in Canada, like uh, over your professional career, but you've kind of always migrated back to Greenfield Park at some point in time. Do you still have a lot of friends in the community or like from the South Shore of Montreal? Yeah, I do. I still own, uh, my, my folks are, are, are gone, but I still own the family home in Greenfield Park. I go, I go back regularly. I, I try to go back for the Mike Reed, the big softball mm -hmm. tournament they have. That's a, a kind of an informal, uh, I guess, reunion every year because it's a, it's a weekend. It's a good time, and it's a lot of people that don't live in Greenfield Park anymore tend to come back. So if you want to see people that you haven't seen in, in a while, it's a great time to go back there. And uh, it's, it's apparently one of the, uh, for the, uh, the, the beer vendors, I, I, I heard most recently <laughs> that it's uh, 
of all the softball tournaments that they, they provide beer for in Quebec, it's the biggest seller. So, uh, and I know we regular, the, the team that I play on uh, is regularly the biggest consumer at the tournament. <laughs> so we have a good time. <laughs> you make their year. Yeah. So a lot of the friendships that you kind of fostered in Greenfield Park came from growing, playing up for the Packers and coaching with the Packers and through the football community. Absolutely. So we got a few football questions for you. That's our next segue. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you one uh, moving away from the Packers because that's where we all met each other. We grew up together. But you played football at John Abbott, and you played for longtime coach Bob Binden, who actually, when I first got into coaching, really gave me a start by allowing me to coach training camp at John Abbott. So I'm really thankful to him. But tell us about his coaching style and what do you remember about your time at John Abbott? Well, I guess the first thing, I, I guess I was, I think, 18 when I went there, and I, I was young, and it was really rough to go there, going there from Greenfield Park, because John Abbott was on the North Shore, and that was basically our, our not just our nemesis and our arch rival on the football field, but mm-hmm. even, I would say, culturally. Like, we were the, the Anglophone neighborhood that was the kind of – lower middle class, working class, and the, the West Island where North Shore was and John Abbott was more kind of considered a bit of upper class uh, Anglophone neighborhood. And when I went to John Abbott, I went by myself and all my friends went to Lennoxville, Champlain, Lennoxville. So it was, it was a, uh, I guess, a big character building thing to do to go and play there. Um, especially because it's not like the Greenfield Park program was really well-respected there. It wasn't a place they were used to, to drawing from or recruiting from. Uh, Bob Binden, played for Coach Binden. Coach Binden was, uh, I don't know if he had any military experience, but I, I thought of him throughout my military career mm-hmm. because the guy <laughs> was just a, a – he was precision. His, his planning, everything was done in a, in a – he, he maximized every ounce of time that you had. He, he always had everything set days in advance and mm-hmm. kind of his way of running the team and running practices in retrospect, I, I think what I would say was really a military. I, I guess if he wasn't in a military, he probably uh, learned his coaching skills from people that were. Um, he, he ran his staff like, like they were his adjutants, you know, it wasn't like, I won't say it was, it was very professional the way he did things. Uh, he was tough. We, you know, even coming from Greenfield Park, Greenfield Park, <laughs> uh, we had some tough practices there. That's for sure. Some character building moments. Uh, one of my favorite moments with John Abbott was, uh, one camp, uh, or, or one night at camp, we, we went to, uh, the overpass down the road at McDonald college, and we did crabs up and down the side of the overpass. <laughs> I don't know if you ever tried to do crabs going down on the side of an overpass, but you do a lot of somersaults. Um, That'll work. Yeah. Um, yeah, Coach Binden, um, like I said, I always remember we took a trip to John, uh, Grand Rapids Junior College. We played an exhibition game there, except for Grand Rapids Junior College in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Uh, it talk wasn't an another, exhibition talk game another, for them. Another, talk about another blue-collar community. Yeah, <laughs> that was quite an experience. And when we went down there, they um, they actually the way their league worked, uh, the division that they played in, they actually like their game was worth something playing against us. And they were, you know, we were massively uh, outgunned. I think they had two hundred guys on their team. <laughs> I always remember the bus pulling up that day when we first got there. The bus pulling up, and there was a guy on their team standing out in front of the stadium and. 
the guy had a baby in each arm and he had a full beard. And I think he was saying goodbye to his wife before they went in for practice. And the guy's <laughs> arms were the size of the babies. <laughs> so, you know, I'm 18 years old and that's what I realized. We're, we're coming to play a team of men here, you know. Uh, but, but again, back to Coach Binden. One thing I remember about him is uh, during our warm-ups, when we got there, we were doing our first practice and doing some drills. After about 20 minutes, the coach from the other team, I happened to be standing near Coach Binden, and the guy came over right away, and he complimented Coach Binden for the discipline and, and the precision of our uh, the, way, the way we were conducting ourselves. I think uh, hmm. we ended up losing the game 60 to 14 or something, but, you know, uh, like I said, we, we reflected uh, Coach Binden uh, got some good accolades for, for the way that he ran the team all the same. So, That's a good story. Okay. Yeah. So after you left John Abbott, Mike, you went on to play for the Carlton Ravens. And the Carlton Ravens athletics program has had a bit of renaissance here in Ottawa as of late. Yeah. But you were playing for them back in the old Ontario-Quebec division. <laughs> when Carlton so was those, a party school too. <laughs> yeah. So they, there was kind of like, you know, like I, there was two schools, right? Like so two CIS schools at the time. You had University of Ottawa and you had Carlton. Explain to the listeners a little bit about that rivalry and what was the Panda game like? Uh, the historic game where the two schools play one another, like at the time. Oh well, Ottawa, being the nation's capital, is a very uh, public service town, kind of a uh, you know a, a well-to-do town, and it's basically a public service sit town with two universities. And so you have Carleton and you have Ottawa University, the University of Ottawa, and they're on opposite sides of town. And the stadium that the Panda Bowl is played in is right downtown, Lansdowne Field. And on, on, uh, in those days, uh, what they would do was a whole weekend-long party. It was a huge rivalry that people waited for for the, the, whole, uh, the whole semester for that game to come. And they would actually close the streets from Carleton all the way to Lansdowne Stadium and from Ottawa U all the way to Lansdowne so that all the students... So it was kind of like uh, that old movie, The Warriors, you know? It was like the two gangs <laughs> meeting the up in the center, in the center of town. And... Um, it's just a huge, huge party. Like probably the most festive. Uh, I mean, maybe some homecomings down at Bish might, uh, <laughs> down at Bishop's University uh, might uh, approach that kind of fervor. But uh, it was just, just huge, huge parties. Really good times. Then you, you moved back to Ottawa probably about ten years ago. I would think. Have you been back to the Panda game since? I haven't been to the Panda game not yet. Um, it's on my to-do list though, and especially in the last couple of years, they've been. Uh, They've been coming on strong. I don't know if they still have that kind of party atmosphere because they got a new stadium. They probably want to take care of it better than they did the old one. But um, I do know it. It is the biggest university sporting event in Canada. Like they have twenty four thousand people out for the game. So it's it's an incredible. Uh, it's just interesting to see how the kind of the interest for the game has grown. Oh, I remember one game that it, not a game that I I uh, was playing it, but a game I was in the stands for. Uh, there was people throwing water balloons and they had these slingshots with <laughs> surgical tubing and they'd have two guys sitting about eight feet apart with their feet in the air and they would attach the cervical tubing and then another guy, a third guy, would take this giant water balloon and he'd step up as many rows back as he could pull it and they would actually launch water balloons across the stadium over the game at each other. So <laughs> glad I never took one of those, but it was fun to watch. <laughs> So you were a criminology major at yes. Carleton? Okay. I, well, I did. I went to Concordia and I got a, a BA in sociology. 
And then I went to Carleton and studied legal studies. And okay. when I basically with the, the um, for a few extra courses, I got a certificate in criminology. Yes. Okay. So um, what, at the time, what was your career objectives at the time? Like you were definitely looking towards law enforcement? Oh, uh, yeah. I always, uh, always wanted to work in law enforcement. I guess when I, actually when I was a teenager, I kind of wanted to be a lawyer, but was, uh, wasn't a very good student. And, you know, when you grow up in uh, lower middle class Greenfield Park, you kind of are, you're kind of taught that you, you're limited <laughs> or you're made to feel like you are. So oddly enough, I probably have more schooling at this point than a lawyer does. But anyway, I thought being a policeman was less school. So that's. That's the short answer. <laughs> so the, the, to help pay for your studies, you did some time as a foot guard, a, parliament, a parliamentarian foot guard with the Grenadier Guards. That's right, which, yes. Which is an incredibly physically demanding job. So for the American listeners who may not be acquainted with what a ceremonial foot guard is, can you explain that real quick and kind of talk uh, quickly sure. about yeah, that? Well, that uh, when I did it, I did it for it was Canada's 125th birthday, and it was also... For the Canadian Grenadier Guards, which is the, the it's also known as the first Canadian regiment. So it's the the basically the origin of Canada's independent military, and it's it's modeled. It's a a um, a, a cousin unit to the British Grenadiers. So it's the red tunics and the the berets. We maintain that tradition, and uh, the changing of the guard happens throughout the summer months. Uh, there's two things that you do as far as the 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 show part of it is the changing of the guard on Parliament Hill, mm-hmm. which is a ceremonial thing with the the bearskins and the and the red tunics. And there's also the changing of the guard at the Governor General's house. Uh, but what your your life basically is when you're doing that over the summer is you're you're either doing a week at the out on Parliament Hill doing the changing of the guard, or or you're doing it at the Governor General's house for a week, or you're in the field doing uh, basic infantry training. So it's a, it's a very, uh, very intense summer. Um, you don't get a lot of time off. And in that particular summer, because the Queen came, because it was our 125th anniversary and the, the changing of the colours, it was extra difficult. Um, they had, a, I guess we'll say, higher standards. Like all the people that they hired were all university students. And they, they worked us into the ground. I remember uh, one of the things that they would do to teach you how to, uh, to stand still for an hour without being a... Uh, I guess, inervated by the tourists or, and whatnot, is they would take us out to uh, Uplands Air Force Base and they would stand us just before dusk on the tarmac when all the mosquitoes were coming out. Mm. <laughs> and you'd have to stand still there for an hour, getting eaten alive by the mosquitoes. I always thought that was an interesting training tactic. I don't think they do that anymore. <laughs> wow. Mike, that's rough. I mean, okay. I, I've been to Changing of the Guard at Arlington Cemetery. I bring all the tourists here whenever we can. It's, God, it's that's very, an awesome very, ceremony, too. Yeah, it's incredible. How similar or how different was the Changing of the Guard in Canada compared to that? I, would, I mean, the, the, the concept's very similar, and the, 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 the kind of attention to detail and the drill and the, the discipline that's required to be able to do it is, is very much the same, and... I mean, what's at stake is the same too, right? You, you're doing it in the in the name of your nation, and you're right. you're standing in front of people, and you're not representing, you know, Jeff and Todd. You're representing an, an entire country's uh, culture and history in front of tourists that come from all over the world. So hmm. uh, that's impressive. Is there an age cutoff for that? 
I don't think so. I mean, no. when I, like I said, like the year that I did it, uh, generally all younger guys. Well, cause mm-hmm. I mean, you're, you're doing basic training, right? So, I mean, some of the, there are people that do it a second and a third time, but they're going to be guys that get promoted and they're, they're at a higher rank and they're supervising. Right. So that's generally yeah. the kind of thing you don't want to do too many times. It's the kind of thing that you say, yeah, that was really awesome. I'm glad I did it. And damn, I hope I don't have to do it again. <laughs> So did you I, know what? I, I was Sorry, just going to say when I when I first how I got into it was I was walking around Carlton in the spring and I saw this big poster and it was very nondescript just said great summer adventure make a lot of money <laughs> kind of thing didn't even really say that you were joining the military just had this really kind of majestic picture of the guy standing sentry which looked pretty cool to me and the only guy I knew who had done it was a guy we both know from Greenfield Park Jeffrey Roberts oh yeah. And so I said, well, Jeffrey did it. And, you know, he, he never, he didn't die or anything. He never said too much about it. So I phoned him up and in one of the most under, under, uh, understated conversations I ever had, he just kind of said, oh, yeah, you'll like that, Mike. That'll be fun. You'll, you'll enjoy that. And I just bitched him out all summer under my breath. <laughs> that conversation. Did uh, you have any, did you have any inkling at the time, Mike, like, that at some point, like you were an Army Reservist with the Grand New Guards, but did you ever think at some point you would end up Profession of arms? Oh no way! No, I, I actually, uh, I, I, I did. Uh, thanks, to, thanks to my time in the Packers there and the uh, the mental toughness, uh, my mental toughness adolescence. I, I actually did pretty well in the uh, the basic infantry training that was part of uh, being in the guards. And at the end, they asked me if I was interested in becoming an officer cadet. And I remember telling some of the other guys, "Hey, you know, they they said I did really well, and I, I got an A on my course, and they want me to." be an officer cadet and they said well yeah but if you become an officer cadet you can't be friends with any of us so i said fuck that i won't do it and uh, that was basically the end of it for <laughs> geez over a decade yeah <laughs> i want to transition to your time with corrections canada and incredibly difficult job talk about some of the challenges of being a young guy going to work in canada's prison system uh well i mean the first thing i'd say is when i went when i went there uh they hadn't hired anybody in almost a decade. So I, the, the first cell block that I worked in, I worked on a team with five other guys. And I think I was about 25, 26. And the next youngest guy on my team was 46. Wow. And a lot of the things that uh, I went to a, a correction federal staffing college. So you go to a, a corrections academy for three months and there's a lot of training that you get. But uh, they, they didn't really drive home the the important part of it was that the whole concept of what they were teaching you to go do was all new and you didn't really find out until you got to your job that a lot of the people that had been there for decades really uh, were resistant to any kind of change and they didn't really want to be involved in all your new great ideas that you came out of the academy with so uh you know, on top of being a, basically a kid working amongst people that had been there for decades, you're coming there with a big bag of new ideas. Uh, also, being you know having a university education in in in, in the past, they they didn't hire people like that. So, I, I, unbeknownst to you, you're intimidating people and you're concerning them with all of these ideas that you're bringing. So, uh, those things made it exponentially more difficult. I'll say. Also, I, I was, uh, you know, I worked majoritarily in French there, so uh, they hadn't hired any English people either. So, 
That's fascinating. <clears throat> what about some unwritten rules that you learned quickly that perhaps you weren't trained on? Uh, well, in the same kind of order of ideas, uh, one of the first things that happened, I was very keen and I was excited to, you know, uh, uh, get in there and do the things I had learned to do. And I remember one of my bosses uh, very quickly, he, he, I thought he had taken a shine to me and he kept asking <laughs> me to do things. And I thought, well, this is great. He really believes in me. You know, he's got a lot of confidence in me. And one of my partners uh, not so gently took me aside and put me up against the wall and basically said, listen, asshole, every time <laughs> you do all this work, you're bumping up the standard and all the rest of us mm. are going to get shit because we're not doing all this work. <laughs> That's uh, a which, government job. <laughs> which great. I hadn't considered. I had not considered. Uh, great culture. <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, um, that was my first introduction into the difference between practice and theory, I guess. Mm. Uh, you know, the, 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 the college and uh, the way things really work in life. But anyway. I mean, I think, you know, looking at it as an outsider, right? You kind of need the negotiation skills of a social worker. But at the same time, there's going to be a point in time when you know you, you're likely going to get in a physical altercation with an inmate or with a prisoner, right? Like, um, how do you balance that, right? Like, going into that as a young guy, you got to be thinking, a lot of things got to be going through your head what were the kind of the challenges you anticipated as a young guy beyond getting along with the other staff, like specifically the prisoners, like hardened prisoners? And well, how, I, how much did that meet reality when you actually got there? I think it's like any other, you know, kind of, uh, it, it's, it's just a matter of social psychology. And, you know, back to where we started off in, in talking about Greenfield Park and coming from a, a diverse kind of rough and tumble blue collar neighborhood, you I, I, I kind of had, um, you know, a, a base, uh, a basis of kind of interpersonal skills, how to get along with people and how to recognize, uh, you know, know your audience, know who it's okay to say what to and who you need to choose a different uh, kind of choice of words with. And um, at, at the end of the day, you know, it's all people, right? And it's, a lot of it, a lot of what goes on in the daily grind in a penitentiary is a lot like the kind of life you live in high school. You know, there's a lot of uh, jockeying between people for for popularity and power and resources. And if you understand the dynamic and what's going on, you you can navigate it in a way that uh, you generally, you know, and you, you're not going to get in any kind of physical, like nobody's going to hurt you there unless you're, you're doing something you shouldn't be doing. You know, uh, most of the guys that are in there are in there because, you know, they know why they're there and they know what your job is. And you, if you're doing it properly, then uh, I think I mentioned to one of you guys in the text, I got the, I got the nickname, no stress from, from yeah. the inmates at one point, because um, whenever I, my, my team would show up, it was especially there was uh, there were guys in the pen that were from the neighborhood too, eh? and guys that I would know from downtown. Hmm. I mean, as kids, we went downtown, uh, you know, three, four, five nights a week. And uh, when, when you're when you live that that kind of um, a very social life, you get you run across a lot of different types of people, and you end up seeing them later in life. And a lot of them, I did. Uh, one of my friends from down the street ended up being in my cell block, and uh, you know that was difficult to navigate trying to try to help your buddy without uh, breaking any rules and without, uh, you know, uh, attracting too much attention. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, you, you just got to try to, to understand people, you know, and take individual people as they come. And Interesting. That's it. Yeah. Let me ask you this, Mike. I mean, do you feel Canada's prison system does a decent job in reforming inmates and perhaps changing long-term behavior? Or would you frequently see the same inmates coming back time after time? Well, I think, first off, when you're talking about a federal penitentiary, you're talking about people that if, if you get to a federal penitentiary, you, you haven't just done one thing generally. Mm-hmm. You've, you've, you know, you've repeatedly, you've had a hard life by the time you're in there. That's not uh, your first, uh, generally, the, fir- the first thing you do, you go there. So that a lot of people go and come back is, is uh, expected. It's, it's not, you know, it's mm-hmm. not something to be, it's not desired, but it happens. So. It's not abnormal that it comes. It happens regardless of the kind of uh, the, the the mission or the philosophy of the system. But that being said, I think when I was there, um, the, the way that the philosophy about incarceration and how to treat people and whether you're doing uh, you know human warehousing or whether you're you're really really rehabilitation focused has a lot to do with politics and who's in power at the time. So like a lot of things in public service, there's a certain pendulum to it over time, the way that, you know, one decade there's an accent on this and that's where resources are allocated. And then the government changes and, you know, there, there's a shift. Like that's what happened when I was hired and they hadn't hired a lot of people and they were really, really uh, oriented towards rehabilitation and, and trying to help people, um, uh, overcome the the issues that mm-hmm. the, the root causes of, of why they they got involved in crime, and I really liked it like that. I, as guy working in a penitentiary, I I guess a cut to the chase. I wouldn't think I've ever been interested in working in a penitentiary in a human warehousing, like do your time and it's punishment kind of place. Uh, well, there's nothing stimulating about it. What, I, the, the nice thing about I went there really to put it on my CV and it was because the first place it was the first place that hired me and I got immediately really immersed in how complex and how interesting it was and how many roles there were for somebody that that wanted to be involved in, in doing the clinical aspect of why do people end up doing the things they do. Uh, that that was what was really interesting to me. Uh, I, I can't really say if uh, how much it's changed today. I haven't been there in quite a while but uh, i like to hope that the you know here in canada we're, we're still trying to help people out because you can't just lock people up forever and they just come out you know if you're not trying to help them they're not going to come out any better than they were when they went in right, great so, answer mike thanks so mike your role in corrections for close to a decade <clears throat> you get into your 30s 9-11 happens and you made a, an important decision to join the Keen armed forces as a military police officer particularly during the height of canada's efforts in afghanistan can you talk about your motivations at the time? Like, what drove you to make the change? Well, uh, like I had, I had mentioned when I was at Corrections Canada, I worked with a bunch of older guys. I worked in two different uh, penitentiaries. I was there eight years, and I worked for five years in Cowansville High Security Federal Penitentiary. And the older guys that I worked with were always telling me, you know, Mike, you, you really, you're, you're, you're wasted here. They used to say you're with all this junk and you got all these great ideas and you're, you know, you're always trying to help people that can't help themselves. And uh, there was one particular guy that had been in the military and he was still involved with the reserves. And he knew a lot about um, the changes happening with the Canadian Forces Military Police and that they were really reinventing the organization and modernizing it into 
um, a pedigreed police service. And so, and, and he bugged, bugged me and bugged me and bugged me that, you know, that that's that I used to say in French, you know, you're missing the boat, you're missing your calling, that kind of thing. <laughs> and one day he actually brought me in the application package and I applied. And, I, I, you know, as much to make the guy happy as out of a curiosity. And I got a letter back about a month later saying that uh, they didn't hire direct entry officers into the military police, but I was welcome to become an infantry officer. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I was working as a, I was a case manager, so I was a behavioral analyst and had a good job and a good future. And I was 30 and I had been in the, in the guards as a, as a 19 year old doing, uh, doing infantry training. And I really thought that would be the stupidest thing a person could do. So I kind of put that on a shelf and, and ended up going, move, going to a different uh, penitentiary. And about a year later, 9-11 happened. And about a month and a half after that, I got another letter uh, from the recruiting center that said they had changed their policy. And if I was interested, they were now open to accepting direct entry applications to the military police as, as an officer. So uh, I guess what, what drove me to do it was I could really see that is interesting as it was like I did four different positions in Corrections Canada and it was really, really interesting. Uh, but the one thing that I kind of realized one day is the whole point I went there was to pump up my CV to get involved in policing. And I had been there eight years and, and just being absorbed in, in all the new and different things I was doing. And the other thing I noticed is that it's a really, really intense place that I, I decided that it's probably not good for you to do 30 years in a place like mm. that as a, as somebody. Yeah. I would look at, at older guys that I worked with and say, you know, they were born like that. You know, this being in this place that that makes you the way they are. And I don't want to be like that. Mm. And also, uh, it, it, it's not healthy. You know, it wasn't mm. a healthy place. I remember the at the penitentiary, the first time I took uh, when you took your summer vacation, it went by seniority. So. As you, if you've been listening, you can imagine <laughs> I never got any vacation. <laughs> so I remember after about four years, I was able to take a whole like two weeks off. And there was a guy, one guy telling me on my way out, you shouldn't do that. And I was getting in my car. And I, what the fuck's wrong with him? I'm excited. I, you get two weeks off in August is for the first time, you know. And when I came back, it was a really, really uh, physically and emotionally stressful experience to walk back into the penitentiary. Mm -hmm. You could really feel Shock like the system. feel mm -hmm. that you could cut the tension out of the air with a knife, and I, I had this kind of epiphany like, "Holy smokes! I come in here every day, <laughs> and I've been doing it for four years, and I never I take a vacation, and it's 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 kind of like um you know, anything that you get used to over time, and when you go away from it and come back, it you realize you know the the poignancy of it, if you will." So back to joining the CF, I decided that uh, I, I looked into it and I, I, you know, I thought I knew a lot about it because I had been in the infantry reserves. Uh, so I, I also, uh, the, one of the last things I did with um, Corrections Canada was I was the regional union president. So I had become involved in leadership and management and taken a real interest in, in that kind of thing and could see how you could really not just sit around bitching about things you didn't like, but you could actually find a way to, to, to influence things and so concurrent to that kind of line of thought I had this opportunity to join the military police and go not only to a police academy that was a brand new you know really uh, 
highly touted police academy and at the same time go to a leadership school, which would give me the ability to be involved in, in management and leadership from that point on. So that was the, the nascent or what, what sparked me to go and uh, leave the pen. Also a healthy lifestyle is a, the, you know, the Canadian force has a really healthy lifestyle. You guys know I'm a sporty guy. I, I like to stay healthy and be active and you get a lot of chances to do that in the military. So those are all the things that, that prompted me to do it. How hard was doing basic officer training in your thirties? Physically, mentally, like physically, mentally, right? Because you're, you're, you're an established professional in your field, like in corrections. Now you're going to be thrown into an environment with people who are coming right out of military college, uh, right off the street, potentially. Um, well, working with peers who are 10 years younger and your body is also 10 years older as, as well, right? And you're back well, out in the field. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I was always a big fan of Walter Kurtz. I don't know if you guys know Apocalypse now, but <laughs> somebody, some of some people have told me I wouldn't like him, but <laughs> back to, back to the Packers. So it's uh, not to yeah. keep going back to the source there, but. I remember being, I think, 14 or maybe even 13. I think I weighed about 130 pounds. And one night, if you remember, they had those uprights that were the <laughs> soccer uprights and the football uprights. Mm-hmm. So they, the drill for the night was they hung one of those 200-pound punching bags on a rope from the middle of the, <laughs> the, the uprights. And, yeah, and you lined up on the five-yard lines, on the five-yard lines, and you would take runs at it at, at the whistle. And they would actually swing it at you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, no, uh, no concussion, no fears of concussion or so when I was, back then, right? No, no. So when I was doing my basic officer training and uh, things were getting rough in those difficult moments where you think you're going to die and I would look to the left of me and I would look to the right of me and I'd say, well, they're not dead yet. And they didn't get a punching bag swung at them. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they didn't do, uh, you know, they didn't do nutcrackers four nights a week and they don't know who Paul Vescuzzi yeah. is and right. you know what I mean? So uh, I, I, I just, you got to go back to, to the, the the your the sources uh, the, the things to keep you running in moments like that you know but it was really hard I actually uh, I, one of the first things that happened to me I was very fortunate to be in a training platoon that got disbanded and the uh, the platoon commander was put under investigation for abusive training uh, tactics uh, we we went out in the field one night we were twenty five <laughs> and we came back and there was only fourteen people left five, <laughs> five days later. Uh, and I was one of the people that was still there. So lucky me, I made it through to the end. And when you graduated, what they did for the officers was all the guys that didn't speak their second language, they went to language training, uh, which was kind of like Club Med, you know, because mm-hmm. they, you, you're finished this four-month course and then you go and you sit in school for six months being a student. Whereas because I was already bilingual, I finished on a Wednesday and on Monday morning I was in, uh, in New Brunswick in Gagetown starting my phase two infantry officer training which is even more difficult than the basic officer training and so keeping the story short i uh, I, I tore my achilles mm. in i think week three of that i had a full uh, rupture of my achilles tendon and uh one of the most difficult things about the whole beginning of training until that moment wasn't all of the difficult the physically challenging and difficult and rigorous uh, things that i went through it was that that morning i tore my achilles and from that moment, I wasn't able to do stuff for nine weeks. And yeah. it drove me absolutely out of my mind. Even in the, in the few days after my surgery, I was driving the people in the hospital nuts because 
they'd come out in the night and in the hallway, I'd be like a gazelle going down the hall with my crutches, just seeing how many, how fast, how many bounds I could do and how far I could do them. And, because uh, when you spend five months having 18 hour days where you just go, 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 go to just go from one day to the next. Oh, you have to just lie down all day. They just couldn't handle it. It was brutal. Yeah, um, I mean, it's similar to an athlete, right? Like uh, you're as a soldier, I imagine you're, you're wholly dependent on your body's ability to function. Right. So you take that away from somebody. Uh, they're going to want to test themselves and, and try and get back in the field or as soon as possible. Right? Yeah, so, absolutely. Couldn't wait to get back to work. You know, Mike, I, I will say I appreciate you keep bringing everything back to the Packers. I think the Packers have done so much for all of us and helped mold us, you know, our, our character, ah, sure. our discipline, our drive. And I, I think at times we forget how much or not, perhaps not you, but I think some of us forget how much the Packers really have done for all of us. But uh, let's get back to you. Talk about the different type of work you would do as a military police officer. Well, I mean, the, the Canadian Military Police, uh, like as an organization, it does pretty much everything that any uh, you would think that a, a civilian police service does. I guess the two basic differences I would say are that, that number one, they generally the the average, uh, I guess, client or person that a military police uh, policeman's going to deal with is a, a lot more likely to uh, have training um, that you you want to take into account when you're dealing with people, I'll say, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to the average citizen that you, you know, if you might, if a city of Ottawa policeman goes to a domestic, the chances that they, you know, that the people inside have weapons and are trained in, in, you know, uh, combat techniques is a lot less than what happened to a military policeman. And the other thing is, is the jurisdiction. Uh, civilian police have a, a geographic jurisdiction that you can point to on a map generally Mm -hmm. and the military police jurisdiction is more about uh people and and resources and infrastructure in relation to national defense and the kind of work that they do i mean they do you know we we have detachments all over canada that are you know police stations that do policing in relation to national defense and military policing we have an air marshal unit we have a a national close protection unit. So, so people that, you know, generals that need mm-hmm. bodyguards or the prime minister goes to a war zone or that kind of thing. Uh, we have special investigations units. Uh, the military police in Canada uh, are, are responsible for security of all the embassies, all Canadian embassies. <laughs> so there's military police at the embassies all over the world. Um, there's a, the national counter human intelligence uh, unit is, is staffed by uh, military police uh, for myself, the, the kind of things that I did, um, I was a detachment commander. I was a deputy detachment commander of a bigger detachment. Uh, I, I was a force protection expert. I was a threat risk analysis expert. Uh, I did a lot of uh, things in related to international law and law of armed conflict. So I was uh, a detainee handling expert. Uh, that kind of thing. As a staff officer as well, I was a lessons learned officer. I, I took I had a really interesting experience doing uh, conduct after capture instructor training. That was a good time. <laughs> yeah. thought, thought of my nights with the Packers a lot doing that. Too. <laughs> Guantanamo. So yeah, yeah, good times. So Mike, you had a career that spanned like in the military that spanned in nearly two decades, right? Um, yeah. At a very tumultuous time for the Canadian Armed Forces, like a very op- operationally uh, heavy time for the for the CAF. Oh, I wouldn't some... have wanted it any other way, though. Yeah. Yes. 
So what were some of your proudest moments? Like if you kind of, you know, I mean, like it's hard over two decades to kind of maybe pick one or two, but what are some of the things you're most oh, proud of? Proudest moments. I, th- I think accumulative of proudest moments is being a guy that, um, you know, it's funny because I, I came from my last thing I did before I was an officer of the military is was I was the president of the union. And I, I got very fond of, fond of um, speaking truth to power, if you will, and um, being a dissenter. Uh, you know, and, and I guess not being afraid to military is a very competitive environment, especially the, in the in leadership. It's very, very competitive. And there's a lot of complex uh, moral and ethical issues that you go through. And I think it's sometimes when you're really trying to get ahead and you, you, a lot of people that have big aspirations, they kind of lose grasp of, of what where the line of right and wrong is and i i I think i'm really proud that i i didn't i like to think i didn't do that um i never put my own opportunity to advance before standing up for people and for you know my idea of justice in 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 a given context so i'm really proud of that right on Uh, i I did a lot of uh working as an assisting officer so a lot of guys in the military police that you know uh, we're under professional standards investigations or that we're, you know, uh, forced to submit grievances for, I did a lot of help in a guys like that. Um, I, I was really proud of, of that kind of role. Uh, and a big thing that I did was I was an assisting officer for a dying member. Mm. Uh, and so I, I was able to, to help him and his family, uh, through that process. And that meant a lot to me. Um, yeah, that's so, a role so, that I think is hypercritical, yeah. right? Like you, you talk about peer, like you, you know, support through peer support, and you know, getting people through difficult periods. So absolutely, thanks, yeah, thanks for that. Sure, good for you, Mike. Honestly, that's that's very noble. Everything you've talked about, I'd love to uh, read the book that you'll write one day about your life. <laughs> <laughs> so now you're transitioning. You're working on your master's uh, in criminology. What uh, aspect are you particularly focusing on? Uh, well, my master's is in public safety. And uh, my concentration is in national security. And what, I, what I'm hoping to do is, is basically leverage all of the things that I, I've done up till now. Uh, one of the things I like to be honest about my, my program, every once in a while, I get asked to write a research paper on something as part of the course that I don't even have to read the material because I've, I've spent so much time in it uh, that, that I can do it. And I hope that... Um, when, once I'm done to get an opportunity to work, I, I'm going to continue working in in, uh, in public service. So I'll likely work for a Public Safety Canada or Global Affairs or, um, you know, maybe uh, CBSA, Canadian Border Services, yeah. uh, that kind of thing. Uh, that's what I hope to do. Uh, keep, uh, I have something to do that I get up every day and feel like I'm making some small, you know, contribution to stuff and that I'm proud of. And it pays the bills. I love it. So, so Mike, I'm going to, before we finish up, uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about kind of where some of your own personal motivation comes from. And as you know, I knew your dad. And yes. the way that I knew your dad is I was a physical education instructor at the military yeah. base in Montreal. Yes. And your dad used to get gym access as a, a family member of a military member, right? He, he certainly did. Yeah, and he loved did. it. And he was in his 80s, and I remember he was playing in, like, two ice hockey leagues. He was yeah. working out, doing weights. He was – one time they actually caught him sneaking in a couple times to play ball hockey with the military members. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? 
and you talk to people that know, like, you know, the guy, Tyler's work ethic, like, you know, always working out. Um, how much of your own personal motivation, both professionally and your own personal life, comes from, like, kind of his work ethic and his drive? Oh, I, I, could, I couldn't uh, thank him enough. I mean, I, I, I mean, I owe my, I had great parents and I had a great neighborhood. Uh, you know, what more could you ask? Uh, I certainly would credit my dad and his, uh, you know, leading by example. My dad lived by, by staying healthy and he believed in telling the truth and paying his bills and, you know, doing the right thing. And he's a pretty simple blue collar guy. And I certainly try to follow and be as much like him as I can be. That's for sure. Because I always remember, man, like, Mike, I always remember a story of you personally. I remember I was at Concordia, and I was finishing a bachelor's degree in political science, and I was doing, like, a history survey course just to get it done. And you had already finished your your degree, like, at uh, Carleton, I believe, and you were kind of in the process of applying to either Corrections Canada or the other law, like, law enforcement agencies. And you were actually in the survey course, and I'm like, okay, well, what are you doing this history course for? And you said, well... You know what? I want to. If I do get an interview with an employer, I want to show them that I'm, I've been stayed busy and I'm I'm actually being productive, right? And it's like, oh, man, yeah. so that Mike Doris, man, he's always hustling, man. I'll always mm-hmm. be closing, like you know, it's tireless uh, no, work ethic and it's paid off. Keep your body moving and your brain working, or they shut down. Love it. That's why sharks live so long; they never stop moving. <laughs> <laughs> so we usually finish with a top five list. We don't have a sure. top five list tonight, but. You know, as a former corrections officer, we were going to go with the best prison movie scene uh, category. <laughs> so, so I got a few cat. I got, I got a few ones for you, but I want, right. your, I want your one or two best prison flicks. So we got Shawshank Redemption. Yep. Okay. Uh, Morgan Freeman. Everyone loves it. Oh, good, yes. good, good, good moral code. You know, moral code there. Good, uh, good message. Stephen got, King. Yeah, yeah, it is Stephen King, right? Yeah, That's we got Brew Baker. Robert Redford goes in as a uh, supposed prisoner, but he's actually going to be the new warden of the prison. And he wants to find out who's <laughs> who's corrupt and kind of where the systemic issues are in the prison. So that was a 1970s classic. Yep. Uh, Escape from Alcatraz, Clint Eastwood. Enough said. Uh, Lock Up with Stallone. Donald Sutherland is the evil uh, warden who gets Stallone, who's close to parole, gets him transferred to the his that's facilities. A, that's <laughs> a very, very disturbing alternate reality, yes. Okay, we got the blood in, blood out. We got the Crips versus the Hoods. Uh, yeah. Different gang, gang, gang-related uh, violence in the prison. Mm-hmm. So uh, th- those are five. But I want your thoughts. What are one or oh, two? Oh, yeah, you don't have mine though. What's that? It's Papillon. Oh, <laughs> you gotta have Papillon. <laughs> Steve McQueen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right on. Yeah, yeah. I think was, yeah, that's a good one too. I don't know. It, it reflects. Uh, it reflects both my careers actually. <laughs> cool hand Luke too. That's another one too. Paul that's Luke. a great yes. That's a good movie. Yeah. Good. All right, yeah. Mike. Did, this has been fun. No, uh, pleasure talking to you guys. Yeah, this has been so great. Nice. Yeah, yep. I, I look forward to uh, meeting up in Ottawa. We can do this face to face, buddy. Yes, buddy. Yep. Thanks for coming to the podcast, Mike. And more importantly, thanks for your service, man. It's yep. uh, three decades. Oh, you're too kind. I appreciate that, guys. Right on. Cheers, boys. All right, man. Yeah, love talking to you guys. See you guys soon. Later.